Last week we only got through, um, I think we ended on verse 12, if I remember right. And so I believe we have verses 13 and 14 to finish up. Um, But I do want to just take a moment and do a quick review. And really in verse 9, we find a lot of content that helps us in understanding the text. So there's some things we have to note in verse 9 that sets up the rest of the text. And so if you were with us last week, or even if you weren't and you just noticed this, um, first thing you have to note is what kind of passage is this? What kind of Bible text is this? How would you classify this passage as a what? As a parable. So in verse 9, and he spake this parable. So we should circle or square out or mark up that word parable. This is the type of text that we're dealing with. That affects how we interpret the text. So everything we read after this, we have to keep in mind, this is a parable. So if it's a parable, that means it's a story that has one main emphasis, one main point. There may be other minor points that we can kind of read out of the passage, but there's one key point we have to understand in reading through this passage. And so he tells us what that main point is. Now, if you're with us last week, we summarized it and we gave you the term that kind of simplifies this idea. But what's the, what's the main point in this passage or this parable? What's Jesus dealing with? What does he want us to understand? He wants us to know about something. And what are we trying to learn from this passage? I'm sorry? Okay. Uh, that would probably be one of those minor points. There's a, there's a larger point here. I'm sorry? Okay. Yeah, you're, you're right there in that lane. If I can't do anything to earn heaven, then that means there's something wrong with me. I'm I'm sinful at my core, therefore I am guilty before God. And in order to be made right with God or so that I can see heaven, I have to be justified. So the point of this, the word we want to make sure we mark somewhere on the paper is justification. Justification. This is dealing with justification. Now, we can see that he doesn't use that term, but we understand what he means here in verse 9. So he says, he spoke this parable unto certain. So he's speaking to a specific group of people. And as he's speaking to this group of people, he's dealing with an issue he wants them to understand. And the issue is that they trusted in themselves. Do you see that there in the the text? So he's spoken to them and those he was speaking to trusted in themselves. So he's telling a story to a group of people who believe that they are okay, they are good because they're trusting in themselves. That phrase, trusted in themselves, is speaking to their view of justification. I've been justified because I am, it goes on to say, righteous and despised others. Now, righteous here is not a godly righteousness, but a self-righteousness. So under the word righteous, you can write self-righteous. And then what do we call people who despise others, look down on others? Well, there's lots of names for them, I'm sure. I probably should have worded that question differently. What is a church-appropriate word or or term we give people that are constantly looking down on others, condemning others? Judgmental, right? Prideful, yeah, that's a form of pride. But under despised others, they're judgmental. So, This group of people that Jesus is speaking to, that he's going to tell this story to, trusted in themselves for justification, were self-righteous and judgmental. And then he's going to tell us a story that emphasizes 
that type of person. But he's going to compare it with someone who's on the other side of that coin. So he's going to give us a compare and a contrast. And in this story, he wants this crowd to sit back and think, okay, which character am I? In this story, which person best describes me? Am I like this person or that person? And so we talked about this. Um, I, I want to read this again. It's a definition of justification, and I like this. And again, it's very lengthy, so please don't try to write it all the way down. But I'm just going to read through it all. And I think in this, we see kind of the emphasis of what we're talking about. So justification can be defined as an act of God whereby he imputes, we talked about this last week, to impute something to someone is to give credit to them, right? To give to their accounts. So I, I don't have righteousness. I'm given righteousness by and through what Christ did for me on the cross. So justification is an act of God whereby he imputes to a believing sinner the full and perfect righteousness of Christ. Forgiving the sinner of all unrighteousness, declaring him or her perfectly righteous in God's sight, thus delivering the believer from all condemnation. It is a forensic reality that takes place in the court of God, not in the heart of the sinner. It is a a legal understanding. I am guilty before God, but through Christ, because I've placed my faith in Christ, receiving his grace and forgiveness of sins, I am declared righteous. I am made righteous. I'm still in my flesh just as guilty as I ever was. I've done nothing to make myself innocent or righteous. It is Christ's righteousness that is given to me by grace. And I like that, that the author, this is from a book by John MacArthur called The Gospel According to Jesus. He actually points out this is a forensic reality. This is something that is going to be all-encompassing in your life. And it takes place in God's courtroom. That means it's God's decision. Therefore, it cannot be taken away or overturned. So the question we have to ask ourselves after verse 9 is, who is justified? Who is justified? Well, we're not going to go through all of it. We'll read the verses together. I'll make a couple points, and then we'll get into our new stuff. So it says here in verse 10, two men went up into a temple to pray or into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. What is a publican also called? Tax collector. So if you didn't know that, you can circle publican and write tax collector. And we've talked before in other settings about the seriousness that people of Israel took the sin of the publican or the tax collector. The only sin that was comparable to that of a tax collector was that of a harlot or a prostitute. But a prostitute actually was seen as less of a sinner than a tax collector. Um, because these individuals betrayed Israel. They betrayed their own people for Rome. And they were most likely, we'd, we can't say all of them were, because Matthew was a tax collector. And we don't have evidence that Matthew robbed anyone or ripped anyone off. But historically, and from church history or history of the New Testament, they did most likely rip people off. They took extra money than what they were supposed to. They were allowed to, I should say, but they robbed their own people. So two men went up into the temple to pray. So there's a purpose here, and we talked about this. What is the purpose of the temple? So you can jot underneath their temple to pray that phrase. And we did this last week. Luke 19, 45 through 48. So Luke 19, 45 through 48. We actually read a story here in a little bit in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus going in and turning over the tables. And he was mad because the people had forgotten the purpose of the temple. And I mentioned it last week. I don't think Jesus does anything by accident. 
I think Jesus specifically used this example in his story as almost a precursor to, by the way, I'll deal with this issue in a minute. Like you guys have already missed the point of what the temple's about. So it's almost like he kind of put it out there and then he's really going to deal with it in a chapter or so. And I, I just, I'm amazed that Jesus does these kind of things. He seems like he's talking about one thing and he's kind of hinting at, you guys have already forgotten what the temple's even for. But again, we'll deal with that in a moment. Then he goes on to say this in verse 11. The Pharisee, this religious man, stood and prayed. Now, it is okay to note the position of prayer. Verse 13, how did the publican pray? Was he sitting down, laying down, standing up? He was standing. So both of them are standing. That tells me it's not important how we pray. Whether I'm standing or sitting, one's not holier than the other. Now, there are times the spirit may move and you feel as though I just need to get as low as possible. There's been times in my life I've been that way. Nothing wrong with that. But I want to note the position of prayer is not the key here. That's not the emphasis in Jesus's example. It's the heart of the one praying. Okay, it's the heart of the one praying. So the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I've always found it interesting that Jesus put that in there. He thinks he's praying to God. He thinks he's communicating with God, but Jesus is like, well, he's just talking to himself. He's just kind of talking to the air. He says this, and this is his prayer. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men uh, are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. So again, this publican, he's within earshot. So you're going to find out in a minute here that this, this individual most likely hears what this guy's praying. Again, remember, this is a story. There's no guarantee this historically happened, but I would tend to think something like this has probably happened at times in the New Testament. So it goes on to say, verse 12, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So this was his prayer. We said it last week. What did we circle last week in the prayer? It was a problem the Pharisee had. It was an eye problem. Just circle all the times in the prayer so verses 11 and 12, that this person used the word I. You can see very quickly where his heart really is. So what is this man doing? He's not really praying, is he? He's boasting, right? I've, I heard one author say he's basically using this as a way to give a spiritual resume. He's trying to impress God, right? Look at all that I have done. Now, is there anything wrong with fasting? Is there anything wrong with giving tithes? No. But those things don't gain us justification. They're evidence that we've been justified. I don't give tithes so that God will be impressed and forgive me of my sins. Because I've been forgiven, because Christ has redeemed me, I give of all of me. Now, this man gave of his tithes of what he possessed, but what was he holding back? Romans 12, 1 and 2. He wasn't a living sacrifice. Right? He wasn't putting his whole heart out there. So here we see again, he uses this as a way to give a spiritual resume. Now, why does he believe this will justify him? Because he's doing the things that God has called him to do. He believes he's good. Okay? But let's look at the publican's prayer. Now, in my notes, I just put here, the Pharisee gives a spiritual resume, verses 11 and 12. And I mentioned last week, if you want to bracket some verses um, verses 9 and 10 is one bracket, uh, Jesus setting up the parable. Verses 11 and 12 is the Pharisee's spiritual resume. 
Verse 13 is the publican and his spiritual need, or the tax collector and his spiritual need. And then uh, in verse 14, we see the, uh, who Jesus actually declares is justified. So those are kind of the brackets, 9 and 10, 11 and 12, 13, and then verse 14. So you can see how it breaks the text up. So the publican gives his spiritual need. Uh, would I have a volunteer that would like to read verse 13 for us? Right off the paper there or from your own Bible or whatever. Renee, thank you. Okay, so very quickly we see a stark contrast between one man's prayer and the other man's prayer. Now again, remember, this is a story. So who's telling the story? Right, verse 9. And he spoke this. So if someone's going to tell us what prayer should look like, it's going to be Jesus, and we should listen. And if Jesus tells us these are things that are important in prayer, I would hope that we would pause and say, does my prayer life reflect that? Again, what did the disciples ask? We looked at that passage here A few weeks ago, Lord, teach us to pray. And so again, another example here. He's also showing them what prayer in the temple looks like. And again, the one that the temple is for, if he tells you, this is how I'm expecting you to pray, that's how we should pray. So again, Jesus is being very specific in this contrast. This tax collector admits two key things in his prayer time. There's two keys That this man admits. Now we should note he is standing just as the Pharisee is. But what's the difference in his standing? He's a a far off. He's a far off. Now what does the book Acts tell us? That the gospel reaches even to those who are a far way off. There's a stretch. There's an advance to the gospel that stretches to all who are in need. Not just the religious. But even the worst quote sinner can receive grace. So again, I love this, that Jesus is saying, there's a reach to my grace and my gospel that you will never understand. You might write this person off, but I can reach them with my grace. I can save them. So again, what are two key things that this publican admits in his prayer or speaks to in his prayer? Okay, so we have to circle that, right? Um, In verse... At the end of the verse, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So we can circle that. He admits he's a sinner. What else does he speak to in this call out for for need or his prayer? Yes, he admits he's a sinner and he asks for mercy. Those are two key things that really kind of fall at the base of what we call the sinner's prayer. Now, there's no such thing as a sinner's prayer in Scripture. We don't read that. We read of prayers of various kinds where people pray them and then receive forgiveness of sin. Some short, some long. But here we can see this is literally the prayer of a sinner. He says, I'm a sinner. I need mercy. It is also worth noting, this man is standing a far way off. What's his position, though? He's standing, but where's he looking? He's looking down. Why is he looking down? Shame, guilt. If you've ever had your child do this or you did this when you were a child, you got called to the carpet by your parents. Did you come in with your head raised? No, most likely you came looking down. 
right? Fumbling with your shirt. Um, uh, you know, did you, did you do this or did you do that? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, right? You just feel shameful. You feel guilty, right? You know you deserve punishment. So this man comes in this attitude, this position, if you will. What else do we notice about what he's doing physically? He's hitting his chest. Now, we have to pause here. It is not saying a requirement for forgiveness of sin or justification is self-abuse. Right? Now, you might say, well, that's obvious. It's not so obvious to people in the world. Years ago, I, I forget even where I saw it, but I remember seeing something about it. I think it was in the Philippines. There was a group of Christians that kind of reenacted the crucifixion. And they would literally whip themselves. Not like, you know, in a play or in a, in a drama. They were literally drawing blood, whipping themselves. And they believed doing that was gaining them repentance and favor with God. Because they were punishing themselves for their sin. And that's what this man is doing. He's punishing himself. That is not saying that's what we should do or we have to do to be saved or to be forgiven. It's just showing the level of guilt, right? The level of shame. He's just disgusted with himself. Now, we have to note something else. This man's a tax collector, a publican. And so most likely he is very wealthy. Most likely he is very wealthy. And yet... He came in humbled, and the Pharisee came in prideful. But in reality, the publican probably has greater wealth than the Pharisee. In positions, as far as in society, he's looked down upon by the religious, but I bet you he gets invited to all the parties. I I bet you he's popular among the worldly crowd. Uh, We're going to see this in a little bit in another example, but we saw that with Matthew. What happened when Matthew and Jesus had Jesus over for a celebration dinner? Who did he invite? Other sinners, right? And these are the people that are the partiers. And so in the world's eyes, this man actually had more to offer. But he comes in humble, meek, and mild, beating his chest, calling out for mercy. There's an example here that comes to our mind of another individual that prayed a prayer like this. And that would be the thief on the cross. And so you can jot that off to the side maybe or underneath there. The thief on the cross, he admitted his sin. He says, we deserve to be on these crosses. He doesn't. Jesus doesn't. He declared the authority of Christ because he declared that he was a king with a kingdom. He declared that Jesus was sinless and he asked Christ for mercy. How did the thief on the cross ask Christ for mercy? He didn't say, be merciful to me, a sinner. So what did the thief on the cross say that demonstrated a request for mercy? What's that? Okay, so that would be him, yeah. That would be him demonstrating that Jesus is sinless and not, not needed to be up on the cross. And we, him and the other thief, we're sinful, so we deserve this. Yeah, so when he said, remember me when you enter your kingdom, that remembering him is being merciful to him. He's admitting, I don't deserve it, but I'm asking, would you do this? Would you remember me? And so we, our minds drift to this. And again, how did Jesus respond to that prayer? Today, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. So he answered a humble sinner's prayer for mercy with, yes, you're forgiven. And so let's dive into how does Jesus finish up this parable? 
So verse 14, maybe one more volunteer that would like to read. I think Sandra, yeah, go ahead. I saw your hand. Okay, so Jesus is now concluding the parable. Now, here's the thing you have to think of. And I try to do this when I read stories or passages like this and when Jesus is telling a story. Imagine you're in the audience. And remember, who's the audience? Who's made, who makes up the audience? What type of people? Well, all sinners. Yep, absolutely. The religious, and they trusted in themselves. Remember verse 9. This is who he's talking to. So guess what? The crowd he's speaking to who are they more like, the Pharisee or the publican? The Pharisee. So as they're hearing this story and they're hearing the Pharisee part, what do you think they'd be thinking as they're hearing him talk about the Pharisee's prayer before he got to the end? He speaks to the Pharisee's prayer. He speaks to the publican's prayer. Before he gets to verse 13, who do you think they think is justified? The Pharisee. Because, well, that sounds like me. I'm, I'm pretty good. Sounds like, I mean, I, I fast just as much as that guy. I do just as much as that guy. And I love this about Jesus because I almost, I don't know this from the text, but Jesus being the amazing teacher that he is, I almost bet there's a pretty long pause between 13 and 14. Because I think Jesus told this story and then he just was quiet. And he's just letting it hang out there, kind of just like, and he's listening. Could you imagine them listening to the crowd? Oh, yeah, that, it's obviously the Pharisee. It's obviously him. I mean, he's so much more righteous than a, a tax collector. Come on. It's obvious. And I almost, I wish I could be in the crowd. Because if I knew how the story went, I'd be in the background just giggling. Like, just, <clears throat> this is going to be great. Because he's setting them up. And he's not in a bad way, but he wants them to realize, I'm going to now completely turn this around. Now, we read this in verse 14. We're like, okay, that makes sense. I've read this before. But they've never heard this kind of teaching. Jesus says in another passage in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, that your righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees. And they're thinking the Pharisees are the most righteous people in Israel. How could we ever get beyond that? But what Jesus actually was saying is that self-righteousness, they're just as condemned as you are. We hear that and go, oh, I got to be better than them. No, no, no. That's saying we're all equal. My level of righteousness and that religious person's righteousness, we're the same. And neither one of us will be justified. So here we see this tax collector went home justified or declared righteous by God based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You can jot down somewhere out to the side, Romans chapter 3, verse 19 all the way through Romans 4.25. So Romans 3.19 through Romans 4.25. We see this talked about there. We can learn so much about the doctrine of justification from this passage. And one key we must walk away with in regards to this justification is that it was instantaneous. Did he walk out of the temple and have to go take a class and study how to be justified and then do some works and go to church a certain amount of times and do these things. And then Jesus said, you're righteous and you're justified. No, the minute he finished praying, he was justified. It was instant. And so if he went home justified and righteous, 
and the other man equally went home condemned, when we lead someone to Christ or someone comes to Christ, the minute they're finished praying, now I believe it happens in the heart before that, but we understand the principle here. The minute that person says amen, the Bible says they are justified in that moment, instantaneously. Now some confuse or combine justification and sanctification. Now, justification means just as if I never sinned, right? Declared innocent or righteous. What does sanctification mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? Okay, set apart. Now, to a degree, that happens the moment we're saved. But what's that? Okay, cleansed. Well, what happens with that sanctification? We're sanctified the moment we're saved, but what happens as we continue to live and walk with Christ? So some people have confused sanctification, especially the progressive sanctification, and justification. And they've combined them and said, yes, you're justified as long as you continue to show sanctified works. But if one fails, your justification fails. So the problem with this is some either combine them together to a point that is unbiblical, or they separate them completely. That because you're justified, you're fine, and sanctification is not even important. But we have to realize that both are in Scripture. We must not separate these so far apart that one is not connected to the other. Justification cannot be isolated and made to represent the sum of God's saving work and his spirit not continue to form us into the image of Christ. So instantaneously we are justified, completely righteous. We are sanctified, meaning set apart. But then progressively Jesus and through the spirit is forming us into the image of Christ. One cannot be separate from the other, but also our justification is not hinged upon how well we conform to the image of Christ. So I hope that makes sense because depending on what you're reading and where you find this, these topics, you might read people that hint at this and I'm not knocking them or picking on them, but the Catholic church has missed this quite in quite a large way. They've combined it to the point where your sanctification and your justification are intertwined and it all depends on works. The more sanctified you appear, the more you are justified. And the problem is when they do that, they're actually falling more in line with what the Pharisee was thinking, not with what the publican was thinking. Now, something kind of amazing that we just talked about. This parable actually comes to life in verses 18 through 30. Now, we looked at this two weeks ago, but verses 18 through 30. Now, how does this come to life? Well, what's the point of the parable? What was the point of our parable again? justification. How are we justified? There's two ways we can be justified. Cry out for mercy, admitting we're a sinner. Or what's the other way that people try to be justified? Verse nine. How did people try to be justified in verse nine? Self-righteousness and a judgmental condemning attitude, believing that they had it all figured out. Luke chapter 18 verses 18 through 30 deal with what individual? The rich young ruler. Isn't it amazing that Jesus tells a parable to a group of people who were trusting in themselves for righteousness and justification? And then it, following that, this young man comes up and basically declares he is already justified through what? Self-righteousness and keeping the law. 
I've done all that. I'm, in pride, I've done all that. And so this story, this parable, actually comes to life in the story of the rich young ruler. He was a man that trusted in himself and would not spiritually humble himself before the Lord, calling out for mercy. We talked about this a couple weeks ago again. When Jesus says to him, what does the law say? What do the commandments say? In verse 21 of Luke 18, he says, and he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. He should have said, Lord, you're right. I'm a sinner and I need mercy. Do you see how different that mindset is? He's being like the Pharisee. I've done all that. I'm good. And Jesus says to him, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. Another opportunity for him to call out for mercy. And he walks away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth and he loved his stuff more than he was willing to submit to Christ. So again, this parable is powerful and freeing in that it encourages us that we are instantly justified before God when we receive Christ. You don't have to work to be made righteous. It's already settled. In the courtroom of God, he has declared you innocent, righteous, fully free, ready for heaven. But as we walk in this world, we're conformed to the image of Christ. We're made into the image of Christ because there's all th- we all have things that we're being worked on. Things that we need to give up. Things that he's reforming and, and conforming to the word of God. I want to share another quote. This is from a theologian named James Buchanan. And he talks about this as it being made the righteousness of God in Christ. And I love this. He says, guilt cannot be extinguished by repentance or even by regeneration. Now, regeneration is another kind of theological term. It just speaks to what happens at the moment of salvation, that we are regenerated. We are revived in Christ. So guilt cannot be extinguished by repentance or even by regeneration. For while these may improve or even renew our character, a divine sentence of condemnation can only be reversed by a divine act of remission. A divine sentence of condemnation because of our sin can only be reversed by a divine act of remission. And what is the divine act of remission? It is the gospel. What does Hebrews say? That, that sin is not paid for without, there is no remission of sin, rather, without the shedding of blood, the sacrificial lamb. So Jesus paying a divine act of remission by shedding his blood on the cross brings us justification. And so what do we learn from this? What do we glean from this? Well, first of all, I know I'm justified. And I don't have to earn God's forgiveness. I don't have to earn God's righteousness. I don't have to earn innocence. But also we realize that because we've been made justified, or because we have been justified and we have been made righteous, now we live in that. And we're conformed to the image of Christ. And also, if we were justified in our sin when we called out for mercy because we're sinners, how are others justified in the exact same way? And so that means I can't look down on you and you can't look down on me because we all equally needed grace. And so again, just a powerful, simple story. But I believe there's a lot of Christians today that are praying and thinking more like the Pharisee than the tax collector. There's a lot of Christians that gather in churches and pray, pray, giving their spiritual resume. And there's a part in this parable that always gets me. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like this guy. Do you know how many Christians look at our world today and go, man, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And he lists them, extortioners, adulterers. I'm not like these people. 
And yet, we were them. And by the way, in our flesh, we're still them. The only difference is we've been forgiven through Christ, and they have not. So we really can't condemn them. Now, does that mean we don't acknowledge their sin? We don't speak to sin? No, we do. But we need to be so guarded in our hearts that our prayer time isn't a time to just thank God we're not like those horrible sinners out there. But also, I love the part about the temple. What was the purpose of the temple? For prayer. And who was the prayer for? All people. That's what Luke tells us. All people are welcome to pray in the temple. And so when Jesus is using this story and he ends up getting mad and flipping the tables because they were not using the temple for the right thing. Again, the grace that was available to the publican was the same grace available to the Pharisee and to all people that would come and pray. What prayer? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so again, just a powerful passage. I pray it's an encouragement to you. Um, And I do want to just give a minute or two for anyone that has any questions, comments, or thoughts. You'd like to add anything to this or to our talk tonight. Any questions, comments, or thoughts? No, I love that. Absolutely. That's awesome. And I like the idea of mourning because I think there's mourning in different ways. We mourn, maybe we realize who we're not. We mourn because we, we some people think they've wasted so much time. Who I, who, look who I've been, what I could have been. And so there's all different aspects of that that I think is really great. Absolutely. And so maybe grief, just, there's a grief there, just a sorrow, right? Not necessarily I'm sad I did these things or I didn't do these things. It's just, man, I'm just broken, Right? Just broken. I love that. Anyone else? Question, comment, or thought? Yes, sir. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And we talked about that a little bit ago. I think it was. I don't know if we talked about it here, just we talked about it too, a couple of us, about the example where Jesus says, when you go into this dinner, uh, don't just assume you're sitting at the best seat at the table. Uh, Go sit at the worst seat and let them move you to the best seat. Instead of going to the best seat and somebody comes over and says, hey, you got to move. There's someone more important here. Um, So yeah, that example. Oh, it's always better to humble ourselves. And the New Testament tells us, Peter says, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Right? We're humble because we know who he is. It's not thinking less of ourselves per se. It's thinking more of him and thinking of ourselves in proportion to who he really is. Absolutely. Sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yep. That's perfect. Yeah. And I think having that mindset, that guard, because I think that it's easy to fall into that and probably not realize we're there. Um, I know that's been true of me in my life where I've maybe thought things about someone and, well, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And it's like almost like the spirit's like, wow, did you arrive and not tell me? Because I didn't know you were there. Um, I thought you still struggle with some stuff, but maybe I could be wrong. Um, so we do. We have to be guarded. Absolutely. And I love that, that, it's a, that we start here and we can drift there. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, the story of Paul and Barnabas and, and John Mark. Uh, Paul forgot that Barnabas had to pick him up, put his arm on him, say, I believe in him. No one else did. Paul got to a point of going, no, we're not taking John Mark. I don't believe that God's going to use him. It's amazing how Barnabas had to remind Paul, you weren't that different so many years ago. So again, we forget how that vital grace was to us. We need to give it to others, right? Again, not in compromising. We speak to truth. We speak to sin. We, we, we're real with people. But man, it, it changes how we evangelize when we remember how we were saved and what we were saved from. Absolutely. Anyone else? Comments, questions, or thoughts? All right, let's go ahead and pray. We'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. Lord, more than anything, we thank you for your word, uh, the truth that it is and the way it speaks into our lives. And uh, Lord, I just, I know that when we read your word, that it's as though you are here reading it to us because we've been gifted with your Holy Spirit, the author of the word of God. And the words come to life as followers of Christ. We're made a, we're given, rather, the ability to understand it, to see it for what it really is. Lord, but I, I'll be honest, there's some times I, I do wish um, I could have been in the back of this crowd, just listening, observing, just watching the people react. But Lord, I'll, I'll be honest, too, to say that, Lord, there's very easily I could have been one in the crowd that would have agreed with more the Pharisee and that he was justified. So, Lord, I pray that we'd remember, as was already shared, that we would just be humble. Again, not thinking less of ourselves, Lord, in the sense that putting ourselves down or tearing ourselves down, but to just think of ourselves not too highly, not too lowly, but in the right way, as one that has been saved and as a son or daughter of God that has been given a purpose and a plan in this life to make you known, to enjoy the relationship and to grow in Christ and all those things as we await eternity. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to also think about others as not so much uh, their sin first, but as a person who is in need of a Savior. Their sin is real and it brings a consequence. We need to speak to that. But Lord, I pray that we would see people not for their sin, but for who they really are, created in the image of God with value and worth. And I pray that we'd speak to that first and it changed really how we evangelize, how we share Christ. Thank you for justification. Thank you for your righteousness being given to us unworthily, but Lord, gifted to us through grace. Thank you that it was instant, that we don't have to merit it or gain it over time. And Lord, the reality is, if you said we are justified, when we cried out in our humility, crying out for mercy, admitting our sin, repenting and turning from that sin, Lord, if you said we're justified instantly, then we can't lose that justification because we didn't do anything to merit it. So we are sealed into the day of redemption. And so thank you, Father, for all that you do. I pray, Lord, again, that we would learn much 
from this passage, that we would gain great insight into your word and that we would strive to be in your word every single day, growing in our knowledge of you and how we can apply it to our lives. Father, again, thank you for today. What a great day it was to worship you in your house, to praise you and to lift you up. We thank you, Lord, for this morning with some visitors that were here with us, Lord. I just pray that you'd continue to work in and through that as we continue to be a lighthouse to this community and that you would just grow your church, Lord, not just in numbers or attendance, but grow us in Christ, grow us spiritually, that we would desire to go deeper with you. Father, again, give us a great week ahead. Help us to see the opportunities that you put in front of us that we might make you known. And we'll ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.